As we prepare to hear God's word this morning, I'd like to begin by asking you the question, how would you define the good life? I think everyone is going to answer this a little differently depending on your stage of life and your circumstances, your background. But I think there are some things that all of us have in common. Here are a few. First, I think everyone wants to be happy. But two, for most of us, the things that we have tried in order to achieve happiness, for the most part, have not worked. Three, many of us have struggled perhaps deep down wondering if it's even possible to be happy in this life, truly happy. And so many of you might have actually given up on finding the good life at all and possibly believed the lie that God doesn't want you to be happy anyway. For me anyway, for a while this conclusion seemed to be good enough. It's certainly spiritual. You know, God doesn't want you to be happy. But I kept finding the word happy used in old books and often in connection to God, even some of my heroes, like the great theologian John Calvin, frequently seem to use the word happy in connection with God, which made me curious, so I looked it up in the dictionary. It turns out the word happiness, though in modern usage, often relates to an extreme state of emotional positivity. That's my version. More traditionally, it comes from the word happenings, or going back to Old English, haps. And so someone who's happy then is someone whose haps or happening circumstances are pleasant, good, or blessed in some way. A modern word that might be more equivalent to this older concept of happiness would be the word providential or providence. In short, then, happiness means I am being provided for. It means that the world or my life is going the way that it should. Now that's interesting. If our lives are going the way that they should and you're being provided for, why aren't you happy? I think part of the problem relates to the fact that while God wants our lives to go in certain ways, we often don't want them to go the way he is leading them. Let's call this the problem of surrender. Another problem is that while God knows the way that our lives are going to go, we don't. We don't like not knowing. Let's call this a problem of acceptance. And finally, the Bible itself says that every good gift comes from the Father of lights. We studied that just a few weeks ago in James 1.17. Deep down, many of you struggle to believe that. Let's call that the problem of faith. So surrender. You struggle to surrender yourself to how God wants your life to go. Acceptance. You can't accept or find it difficult to accept that God knows how your life is going and you don't. And three, faith, you don't believe God is good or that he does good. All three of these problems, surrender, acceptance, and faith, I believe relate to our scripture this morning. 
James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. In this text, God addresses the good life. As James puts it, this is a life of blessing. I'm saying specifically earthly blessing. It's not limited to an earthly blessing, but it certainly encompasses that. And what you should do and how you should live in order to experience happiness or the good life. But in order to do this, you're going to have to make some changes in these areas of surrender, acceptance, and faith. And I believe this morning's scripture will help you to do that. In the passage before us, which I'll read in just a moment, James describes a life which is blessed in this life, something close to what we mean by the good life. And along the way, he presents two essential practices which if you're not doing, you need to do in order that you might achieve this good life. Those practices are, first of all, pursuing the truth, and then secondly, doing the truth. So let's give our attention then to God's Word with this in mind. In James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, this is God's eternal Word. It cannot be broken. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from before time began, you existed in perfect harmony and unity lacking nothing, needing nothing. And yet in your wisdom and because it pleased you, you spoke into being the world, the worlds, and all that it contains, including mankind. You made us in your image, male and female. You endowed us with power and a calling to fill the earth and to subdue it, to multiply, and to be your image bearers and to bring glory and beauty to this place that you have made, if it were possible, to make it even better than you made it. But we failed in our commission, and we sinned against you. And so we were separated from your holy presence and cast into outer darkness. And for no other reason that you loved us, you sent your Son to obey where we failed, and to restore us into true and full fellowship with you that we might truly enjoy not only in the life to come but in this life the good life and the blessed life of your design to give us the abundant life that you had in mind from the beginning and to share and to witness that to those around us lord so we pray that as we dig into your word this morning that you would help us to once again to pursue the truth and to do or practice the truth in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So the essential practice, number one, as I've mentioned, is that you need to pursue the truth if you are going to live the good life that God has in mind for you. This is the first essential practice in our text. It shows up in several places, but I'll point out one in particular in verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So what James describes in the negative in the second half of that phrase, not hearers only, is what I'm talking about when I say pursuing the truth. We're going to look at doing or practicing in just a moment. But the second phrase is where we will begin. Now James adds the word only onto hearers. It's very intentional. He's not saying that hearing is unimportant. It is. In fact, we've just seen in James, throughout James chapter 1, verse 6, and James chapter 1, verse 14, and James chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, the critical nature of hearing. In fact, we've seen just last Sunday that we need to be quick to hear. But in this text, it's saying you can't only hear or merely hear. You're not to be hearers only. He's saying that hearing the truth is an essential practice for achieving the good life. It's not the only thing, but you can't do without it. Living your life the way God wants it to be lived begins by pursuing the truth. And pursuing the truth means that you're hearing the word. I'm reminded of the way that Jesus described people who hear but don't really listen. Or people who look but don't really see. I was reading this week a, a story of a man who was in Paris and he was gazing at the Mona Lisa while everyone else was busy taking a picture of it. They were so intent on capturing the moment and posting it to their social media platform of choice, they didn't actually look at the masterpiece. Or if you're in a relationship, dating or married, are you listening to me? I know you heard what I said, but did you really hear what I have to say? Jesus made a similar observation in the parable of the sower. In explaining why he teaches in parables in Mark chapter 4, he said to his disciples, to you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But to those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. A related verse may be found in such a beautiful psalm, Psalm 119, in which David prays, I often pray this before I preach, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. The point is this, God by his will, James 1.18, has caused you to be born again as a kind of first fruits of the new creation. This is an act of sheer and unprovoked grace. There is nothing you did or could do which would turn the divine attention towards you and warrant such favor. But he did. 
He is, after all, the Father of lights who gives nothing but good gifts. But now you need to respond. You need to pursue the truth with the open eyes and the open ears which he, by the divine optometrist, audiologist, he's opened those ears. The Old Testament uses a a very curious but profound phrase, this prayer, Lord, circumcise my ears. Take off the defiling obstacle that keeps me from hearing you. He's done this for you. That's what the new birth is all about. And so now you need to pursue the truth. He's given you his spirit. He's he's changed you. He's done that work of transformation. Now hear him. Hear him. Before continuing to my second point, I want to pause to consider some important applications of this first idea of pursuing the truth. First of all, when James says that you are to not be hearers of the word only, in other words, when he says that you should hear the word, I want to ask, when is it that you hear the word? I mean, literally. When do you hear the Bible? Now, in a modern age, there's lots of opportunities to hear the Bible, but James would have had one thing in mind, the sacred service of the worship of God. James had in mind, if I may put it this way, the liturgical reading of Scripture, hearing the Word. James was a fan of the church. He's constantly talking to the church. He refers to the church as both a gathering and as an ecclesia, the called out ones, the church. He's regularly speaking to the church in his letter. It's written to the brothers or to the beloved brothers. And here, in an indirect way, he emphasizes the critical place of hearing the scriptures read in the public worship of God. As grateful as we are to have the technology that allows people to tune into the worship of God at a distance who can't join us for church this morning, and thank you for tuning in if you are, it is not, not even close, a substitute for the in-person, face-to-face worship of God, where you hear a person, a man, read the scriptures out loud, and you hear it. It also reminds me, early on in Mercy Hill's practice, our liturgy has changed over the years and added some things and taken some things out. We used to read a whole chapter of the Old Testament. Now, that's a lot of reading. And for some of you who have trouble learning with your ears, you would definitely need to follow along in order to keep up with that kind of volume. It's definitely not seeker-friendly, by the way. Okay, let's read a chapter of the Old Testament. That sounds relevant, doesn't it? But it it was born, that practice, and, and many churches still do this. They have an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, a gospel reading, a reading from the epistles. That sort of rhythm in the life of a church's public worship is born out of a conviction that you must hear the word. 
You need to have someone read it to you. Preferably not an electronic voice, although that's fine. I'm not saying anything wrong with that. This morning we just heard a snippet of the word. 22 to 25 in James chapter 1. We, we heard an entire paraphrase of about two-thirds of Psalm 51. How much do you need to hear in your life? I also think scripture memory fits in here. I didn't do it, but I floated the idea to a couple of my, my friends in the church, a couple of guys. I said, what if we were to memorize the book of James while we preach it? Now, the women studied it last fall, so we're going to memorize it, dudes. Classic guy fashion. A couple of us were, yeah, let's do that. We didn't do it. But it's not too late. I've actually memorized many chapters in the Bible and since forgotten them. At one point, I think I was up to 70 or 80 verses in Psalm 119. I had the ambitions of memorizing the whole Psalm, 172 verses. Maybe someday I'll come back to that. But it's not getting easier to memorize as I get older. So if you're a young person, do it now. That's a way to hear the word. It, it reverberates in your mind at all times. A friend of mine and a mentor, a pastor, used to do his devotions by reading the scriptures by himself, to himself, out loud. He said, Phil, I get it twice. I get to read it and I get to hear it. Hear the word. So that's the first essential practice is to live the good life, you need to pursue the truth. And to do that, you need to hear the word. Second essential practice to a life of blessing, the good life, is that the word you hear needs to not just stay there, but you need to put it into practice. You see this in verse 22 very clearly, but be doers of the word, practitioners, you might say, and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. There's something about a mere hearing or an only hearing that's self-deceptive. Deception is a lie. And you're just lying to yourself if you think that hearing is enough. Now James doesn't specifically tell us this, but I suspect that going to church and going home and calling that a day might apply here. Hearing only, just listening to a sermon and not remembering that it's about life change, that might apply here. He then elaborates on this, gives us a very vivid, it's really quite an elegant, it's really a mini parable, it's an elegant metaphor using a mirror. What's interesting is that sometimes in the scriptures, there, there are other mirror parables in the scriptures. One of them is found in 1 Corinthians 15, where the quality of a mirror or the aspect of a mirror, uh, its, its limited quality is highlighted. We only see as in a mirror dimly, Paul says. That's not what this is saying. The imperfections of a mirror are not on display here, but it's 
perfect quality. It's, it's the idea that a mirror never lies. And this mirror, I was reading about the, the new uh, telescope that's floating in space, and we now have pictures of stars clearer than ever before, and you have something like, I meant to, to bring the article, it's something like 20 rotating mirrors. And it, it's, it's a huge array that they, that they make together. And these astronomers were just so, and, you know, they were sweating bullets. Is it going to work? I mean, talk about feeling out of control. Your baby is now up in the sky, you know, thousands of miles away, and you push a button. And it worked. These mirrors are so clear. They let us see things that we couldn't see with the naked eye. And likewise, this mirror of the Word tells us what we can't know ourselves. But we have to remember it. We have to look intently into the mirror in order to understand what it says or means. But the danger is verse 24, that we become a hearer, or in this case, a gazer, someone who looks and then forgets. A forgetful hearer, not an effective doer. But it's the doer who's blessed in this life. Some Bible background might be helpful here to understand why this is so important to James. Forgetting God's Word is really a consistent theme in the entire Bible. And I don't have time to trace the, the, the theme from Genesis to Revelation. It would be a, a great exercise. Maybe in your reading through the Bible one year, you could just say, I'm going I'm to put an F in the margin of my Bible every place where forgetting the word shows up. It shows up early, actually. Did God really say? The serpent asked Eve. She's like, hmm, let me remember. Hmm. I know he said that, and I think he said that, but he didn't. So she forgot by addition. She added something that God didn't say. I'll let you look that story up later to see what I mean. Here's a great verse, Deuteronomy 4.23. Be careful lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. That's interesting. Forgetting, in this case, leads to doing of the wrong sort. So it's not a question of whether you're doing, it's whether you're doing what God commands. You need to hear, pursue the truth, and then do that. What we tend to do is we hear non-truth or my truth, and we do that. I love this, Deuteronomy 26, 13. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment, which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. So apparently the law required a kind of hearing which resulted in charity, giving some of this sacred portion, I'm not sure what it is, 
giving some of this sacred portion to the Levite, which was essentially the worship leaders in the Old Testament. And then it says the sojourner, that's an alien or someone who's traveling through, someone who's a, a migrant, a vagrant, a wanderer, homeless, the fatherless, and the widow. So four categories of people are to be the result of your faithful pursuit of the truth. That's the essential practice, number one. And then the doing of the truth, essential practice, number two. Now, there's no one I know who's talked about the good life that doesn't include sharing with other people. Wouldn't it be great to just have an abundance of resources, whether it's time or money or possessions, you could just freely share. There's some connection here between pursuing the truth and doing the truth. And then back to my favorite, Psalm 119. I will delight in your statutes. This is verse 16. Psalm 119, verse 16. I will delight in your statutes. <clears throat> I will not forget your word. I like this because it describes an emotional doing. Something about pursuing the truth that leads to an emotional state of well-being or the state of joy and happiness of being born again leads to a determination both to pursue and to do. I love God, therefore I'm going to listen to Him and do what He says. I delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This is beginning to sound like a strange religion. I mean, do you know about any of this? Does this look like your Christianity? James builds on this idea like this. When you forget the word, it isn't that you stop pursuing the good life, but you don't pursue it reasonably or rationally. You don't pursue it as a creature made in God's image. You do things rather that, in fact are contrary to the good life, even though you've been born again as a kind of first fruit of the new world that God is making, you remain in the old world with your old ways. What happened is, I think you stopped receiving the word with meekness, James 1.21. The salvation, that word is able to save your souls. This salvation is a shalom. It's not just your spirit, it's your life. It's able to save you body and soul. It's able to situate you as a human person in this life, ordered and arranged under God's blessing, with God's favor, working with the grain, not of the world that we made. It's often against the grain of that, but with the grain of the world that he's making, that he's renewing. Lesser happinesses too quickly become your focus. Unfortunately, it is bound to be short-lived and ultimately disappointing. This is why we need to remember and not forget to do the Word. It's interesting, doing the Word is often connected with blessing in the Bible, as it is here in James. I found about 25 verses. I can't go through them all but I'm going to give you one of the most famous, Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who does not walk, who does not stand, and does not sit in sinful ways. 
but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He will be blessed. He'll be like a tree planted by an ever-renewing source of life, streams of water. And even though everyone else will go through seasonal changes, his leaves do not wither. Whatever he does, prospers. That's the good life. I also have to mention briefly Deuteronomy 5.29, which highlights the blessing of the good life isn't just for you individually, but it's also passed on to your children and grandchildren in God's perfect plan. Deuteronomy 5.29, you are to keep all my commandments that it may go well with you and your children forever. So practicing the truth means doing the word and Doing the Word is the second essential practice for living the good life. Before I conclude this morning, I want to mention a couple of qualifiers here or think of these as additional notes that are important for you to notice in our text. Without these two qualifiers, understanding this passage would be incomplete and you will not be able to pursue the life of blessing that is presented here. The first qualifier is this interesting phrase, the perfect law of liberty. Look at my text. The one who looks into the perfect law, comma, the law of liberty. What is this? James is often very succinct. And it isn't that he's incomplete. He just makes assumptions that you know the rest of your Bible. And he's anxious to move on to his next point. He leaves much to be inferred with these succinct or concise phrases, and this is one of them. The perfect law, the law of liberty. Well, perfect has shown up already in James, in James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. I suspect one thing that James means is that the perfect law is part of that perfect wisdom from above, James 1.17, that you need in order to mature and to become the person of God's design. For you to become perfect, you need God's perfect word. But it's not just a perfect law, it's a law of liberty. I think some of you may struggle with obedience in some area of your life, of hearing or doing, or maybe you're a forgetful hearer. Join the club. But do you really believe that the law is liberating? Do you really believe that the good life is to be found in the path of hearing and doing God's word. You're struggling to surrender the control of your life to God. This law of liberty, I think, is really important. I suspect that what James means is a little bit like what his older brother meant, Jesus, when he said this to his enemies. Jesus said to the Jews, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
I wonder if you are actually in bondage, imprisoned by your concept of the good life. And what you need is the golden key of release, the truth, the word of God. The truth will set you free. What a promise. Barnes explains it like this. Doing the word will bring freedom by producing a peace of conscience that none of your programs or projects could provide. It imparts a happiness on a high order of mind and exerts a truly good influence over your whole soul. That sounds liberating. That sounds like what we need. But some of us struggle to see God's word as truly liberating, and I hate to say it, but you're not altogether wrong. It's certainly been used, I've certainly used it, more as a punishing tool than a liberating tool. You see, when God's word becomes the end, when the Bible is the goal, and not a means to an end, which is the blessing of God, well, that's when it ceases to be liberating. It's no longer a law of liberty. And this is where James and Paul really nicely overlap. They're like two sides of the same coin. Paul is vicious on this point. He's written whole letters on this point alone, the bondage of the law and its enslaving qualities. Yes. When you make the Bible or the law its own goal, it ceases to function as a means of the good life. On the contrary, back to my favorite, Psalm 119, David understood the reality. Old Testament, here's what he said. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Now, I like to run, and I've stopped running for a while, so I'm starting up again. This means I get to buy new shoes. Whether I start running again at this point is irrelevant. Think of, a, of a, tr a running trail or a hiking path or a bike trail, but running in particular. Maybe you think of a track, a high school track. Those white lines wrap around, and I run in my lane with delight and freedom and joy because of what God has done for me. That is the law of liberty. I once heard the law for the Christians should be like the guardrails on a beautiful mountain highway, scenic, with its vistas. You're not mad at those guardrails. Actually, you're, you're feeling kind of good. I want the law in this church to be liberating in your life, in your family. I want you to find the freedom that God designs you to experience in his wonderful word. The second qualifier that's really, it's just, these are like, uh, maybe they're key spices. You know, you, you make an otherwise average dish and you throw in two more spices and boom, that thing just pops. So these are, these are really, really important. The second one is perseverance. James mentions perseverance here 
in verse 25, he says, the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Apparently, this idea, this critical element, this qualifier of perseverance is fundamental to achieving or attaining the good life which is being presented. And this makes sense because my experience is that nothing good normally happens immediately. I don't like that, but that's the facts. For instance, I'm going to be celebrating a 29th anniversary. Now, we've had a, a good marriage, but it's great now. And I feel like it's only getting better. And trust me, there have been times where I've been tempted, she's been tempted probably more than I have, to call it quits. I'm so glad she didn't. And I'm glad I didn't. Because there are aspects and dynamics to my wife's life and her personality, even her faults and weaknesses that used to drive me crazy. I'm starting to see the light. Ladies, there's hope. Your husband may come around. It's like, actually, what I thought were negatives are pretty cool. And anyone that's been married for a long time most people, I should say, come to see the value of perseverance in marriage. And so I'm using this as a personal illustration of the importance of persevering for the good life. I love being married to my wife. She knows me, and I know her. And we're continuing to get to know one another. She truly is part of the blessed life of God that he's given me. James has struck the chord of perseverance many times in this short letter already. James 1, 2-4, steadfastness or perseverance needs to have its full effect. And the crown of life is held out to those who persevere under trial, James 1, 12. But what is perseverance anyway? Does it mean white-knuckling it? Hanging on for dear life? Definitely. At times, that's all you've got. but it also means leaning in and listening, letting go of your tight grip and asking God, all right, this is really hard. I am not able to do this right now. I am out of ideas and out of resources. I need you to show up in a big way right now, Lord. And just so you know I'm serious, I'm giving it my 100%. That's perseverance. Become, another, another notion here is, this, is the word become, which might be easy to miss, in, related to perseverance in verse 22. James, uh, the ESV gives us, but be doers of the word. If you write in your Bible, circle that be and put a little plus sign, become. It is a command but it's a command, I think, that contains uh, an inceptive quality. It means start doing it. And if you're doing it, start doing it a little more. This relates to perseverance because 
perseverance necessarily implies moments along the way where you're thinking about quitting and you even pause and start making plans to get out of the race. I mentioned that I'm a runner and, or that I used to be a runner and I might be a runner again. In my career of running back in the day, I actually ran a marathon. And I actually ran more than one marathon. And in one of the marathons, I hooked up the, the key in a, in a race, by the way, if, if you're somebody like me, is finding a good runner and kind of sticking with that person. And I, I found a good runner. There's actually a whole group of us that found this guy. He was, he was the best. He was like a coach. And there was one hill in this particular marathon. He says, all right, everybody walk. I thought, I'm not walking. He's like, no, trust me, you want to walk on this hill. So it was like nine to 12 of us just walked up this really brutal hill. You know, everybody that passed us on that hill, we wound up passing them on the finish line. I kept track. You see, become a doer of the word. It involves some strategic pauses, some, some, some reconsiderations, some reflections. You know, what I was doing, what I was becoming wasn't helpful. I need to become something else. It's it has this inceptive quality of starting and stopping and thinking through. The point is, in order to get to, good, to the good life, perseverance is the key. I mentioned in my opening remarks the importance of surrender, acceptance, and faith. I want to end with a favorite Bible verse which is related to how you can live the good life. It's found in Deuteronomy 29. It's easy to remember. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Say those two numbers. 29, 29. It's a favorite verse. Here's what it says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. I think surrendering to the fact that God is in control and you aren't, accepting the fact that God knows and you don't, trusting that He gives good gifts, this is the mindset that this verse captures, Deuteronomy 29, and it definitely relates to our passage. To be blessed in your doing, you need to give up worrying about the things that are out of your control. You need to surrender to the plan that God has for you. And by faith, do what He's told you to do. In conclusion, as a Catholic motivational speaker, Matthew Kelly has a self-help book it's actually quite a good book. It's called The Biggest Lie in the History of Christianity. He writes about his own quest for happiness or the good life, and what he discovered, I think, is worth repeating. He said, happiness and pleasure are not the same thing. Focusing on oneself almost never makes one happy. Lying has never made him happy. He's learned that happiness is usually found by embracing the present moment, which includes expressing gratitude. He's also found it impossible to be unhappy and grateful at the same time. Finally, and I think importantly, anything that has helped him become what he calls a better version of himself, even if it's painful, is something that truly makes him happy. I like this phrase, a better version of myself. God really and truly desires that for you, which is what I mean when I say God wants you to live the good life. 
Happiness is God's original idea. All the haps, the happenings in your life, ordered and arranged according to his perfect plan. Our catechism actually makes this point really clearly when it says that your chief end in life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Often we don't explain this very well. Often it comes out more like your chief end is to glorify God. Suck it up. We can do better than this. If grace is irresistible, it ought to look that way in the way that we embody it in our day-to-day lives, I think. I think part of the problem is that we're too stuck on our own way of doing things. Acceptance and surrender are two major obstacles to living and experiencing the good life, the blessed life of God. The plain and simple fact is that the life of goodness and happiness which you long for is unattainable apart from God's grace and God's ways. Here's the other thing. You're never going to give it up. You're always going to be looking for this life. But you'll never find it apart from God. As simple as this advice may sound, prayer is the way to go. It brings us back to the theme with which James begins his letter. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask. Ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault. That's a prayer. Here's a prayer I want us to pray together. I ask the guys to put it up on the screen. Let's pray this out loud as I conclude. Lord, here I am. I trust you have an incredible plan for my life. Transform me. Transform my life. Take what you want and give what you want to give. I make myself 100% available to you today. Transform me into the person of your design. Enable me to live the life you have envisioned for me from the beginning of time. I hold nothing back. I am 100% available. Lead me, challenge me, encourage me, and open my eyes to see wonderful things in your word and in your world. Show me what it is you want me to do, and I will do it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful prayer of dedication. We've all heard it. We've all said it. Now now may it be true in our lives, and I thank you that genuine and sincere praying of this kind of prayer is one that you will never fail to respond to. You will answer this prayer every single time. So answer it, Lord, in just the perfect way for each and every hearer this morning. We might be doers and therefore people who experience the blessed life in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.